Well, hey, we are in a series on prayer, and we're learning to pray. Uh, we're, we're taking it from kind of a unique perspective, saying that if I'm going to really learn to pray and make this a, a, a habit and um, a, a core of my life, we talked for the first week, one of the first things I need to do is become like a child again. I've got to learn again to become like a child uh, and that includes our, our second week. We talked about trusting like a child because what happens is, at least in my life, I guess I can't speak for everyone, but I probably could, but I'll only speak for me. As I get older, I get more cynical and I get less trusting of people. And whether I realize it or not, that affects my relationship with God and my ability to trust him and to follow him and to lean on him like a young child would their good dad, because that's who he is. Last week, we talked about learning again to ask our good dad for things, to ask him like a child would. And how does a child ask? Well, they ask with great confidence that their dad is powerful enough to do whatever they ask. And there's nothing off limits to ask. And they also ask knowing that their good dad loves them and is personal, truly personal, and, and wants to hear every small detail of their life as well, even if they already, even if he already knows it. I mean, think about that. Parents, if you have kids, uh, when your kids talk to you, do you oftentimes know the majority of what they're already telling you? A lot of times you probably do, but don't you just love to hear from them anyway? It's not like you're going to surprise God with something when you pray to him or tell him something he doesn't know, uh, but he loves to hear from his kids. He loves to hear you tell him about what's going on. So talk to him like a child would. They're good parents. And today I want to build on where we've been and encourage you, as I said earlier, to begin uh, praying in light of the story that God is writing. To recognize yourself as part of a story that God is writing and that God is telling And a key to learning to pray continually and make praying a way of my life is to remember whose story you're living in. God's continually weaving this story of redemption and we get to be a part of it. And it helps us learn to pray in the right way and for the right things and to wait in the right way with the right hope and the right joy as we wait on him to answer. So with that in mind, that's where we're headed this morning. Let me pray. And then we're going to look at at three different uh, stories in Scripture this morning. And uh, we're going to just read a lot of Scripture today and look at examples of people in Scripture who are living out uh, their lives in a way that they understand they're part of a bigger story, that it's not about them. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him. Um, Lord, it's amazing that... uh, In the midst of you being incredibly powerful, the creator of the universe, uh, the one who just spoke and everything happened, the one who will judge everything in the end, um, you bow down low and want to know us personally, that you care about the small things in my life that are uh, weighing my heart today or that I'll uh, go after this afternoon. You care. And you're powerful enough to to do incredible things if I would only trust you like a child. Father, help us to learn to pray in that way, but also to pray this morning in a way where we understand that you're writing a big story, that that would be encouragement to us to know that you offer us a part in it and that would help us to pray for the right things in the right way. Holy Spirit, I I pray that you would uh, teach 
me and teach through me as I, as I teach your word. And I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He would accuse us of, of, uh, of things, Jesus, that you've forgiven. He would uh, tempt us to not believe that you are all-powerful or that you really care. And so instead, show us those things this morning. Holy Spirit, change us. Help us to pray rightly and that it'd be a habit of our life to stay in communion with you. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray all of this through him. Amen. As I said, the the beginning, we got to remember God is, we're going to build off of this from last week, that God is all-powerful and he's truly personal. He's all-powerful, so we can ask him for anything. Anything. We sang it this morning, right? Uh, He can do it. Yes, he what? Can. Yes, he can. What's the big thing on your heart this morning? What's the big thing that you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I really believe that. Do you believe he can, he can do it? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Would you, would you ask him with the faith of a child to do it? As we go forward as a church and uh, we, we look at a building project together, and we're going to, by the way, in two Sundays, we're going to reveal kind of those expansion plans and invite you uh, to join with us as we pray about that and explore that of what the Lord might do. Uh, would you be praying about that? Maybe be praying about, God, what do you want to do here? How do you want to use me in it? What are you going to do? Ask him for big things. But also don't forget he's truly personal. He's not only sovereign, he's personal. He cares about every detail of your life. Every detail. Don't be afraid to ask about the small things or thank him for the small things. I thought of that this morning, actually, as I'm pulling in uh, the church parking lot. I got a new coat last week for this winter, and I'm pulling in, and it's not like one of those big, like, Michelin Man coats like my old one, so I feel like I can actually move. And I don't know why. I just thought, as I'm pulling in the parking lot, it just occurred to me, Lord, thanks for my coat. You know what? He cares about that. He loves to hear me tell him thanks. You're like, yeah, but Josh, you had a paycheck. You bought it. Yeah, but who do you think that was from? I just said thanks. It just occurred to me, yeah, he cares about just the small little things that delight me. He cares about them for you, too. Now, that may seem trivial, but God cares. That's my point. He cares about every detail of your life. And so when we pray, though, remembering he's personal, but also remembering he's all-powerful, we need to keep in mind that in light of those two things, God is writing a greater story than just my life and your life. That he's writing a greater story that he's telling And it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not even about our church. If we don't keep this in mind, you know what's going to happen? Here's why this is important. Here's the the big idea this morning. If, If I don't pray understanding that God is up to something bigger, that he's working this process of redemption, of restoring everything, right, in the end because of Jesus. If I don't pray with that in mind, you know what happens when I pray? And uh, maybe my prayer isn't answered the way I wanted it to be. A couple things happen. I, I get uh, discouraged and I go, well, uh, I, I thought he can do it. Yes, he can. Why didn't he do it? Well, he's writing a bigger story than just my story. And if I don't keep that in mind, then you know what I become when he doesn't do it? I become bitter. I become angry. I become cynical. Uh, yesterday, for, again, I, you're probably tired of hearing me talk about sometimes about my dad, uh, but he passed away. It was two years ago yesterday. That he passed away from cancer. And I prayed big things, you know, would you hear? And he didn't do it. And at times I did find my heart getting bitter and angry and frustrated. But in light of a bigger story that he's telling, 
If I don't keep that in mind, then I quit hoping. I quit trusting. I quit walking with the Lord, following him. Right? You see what I'm saying? We got to know that there's a bigger story he's telling. Otherwise, when we pray, those things creep in. And if I don't do this, the other thing is I'm not going to ever believe that God really hears me. If I don't believe there's a bigger story being told, then when I pray and things don't happen, according to my timeline, I think maybe God really isn't personal. First, I think he's not powerful. Then I think he's not personal. He doesn't care. And so I, I do a couple things. You ever notice what, uh, what kids do when they think their dad isn't listening? A couple things happen. One, either they become despondent and they pull away and they tuck themselves in their room and they don't talk to anybody. And if I'm not careful, I can do that with the Lord. I become despondent and I just, I just quit praying because I don't know if he really hears. Or the other thing sometimes kids will do is they'll start acting out and rebelling to get their dad's attention or their mom's attention. And so sometimes if I, if I quit thinking he's personal and I quit asking, you know what else I find myself doing? Rebelling in sin and turning from him and causing more heartache for myself. We've got to remember he's powerful and he's personal. And that, that happens in the umbrella of a larger story that he's telling. And by seeing this greater story and praying within it, we begin to pray for the right things, waiting and trusting and following Jesus in the right way with hope and with joy. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at three keys to praying, quote unquote, in the story. Okay. How do you pray in the story, recognizing God's writing a story? And we're going to look at, 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 on these three pieces, we're going to look at a different story in Scripture. We're going to read a lot of Scripture today and, and look at how these, uh, these people lived in light of a greater story and how that probably affected their prayer life. Are you with me? Here's the first thing to recognize on how to pray in the story that God is writing. Here's the first one, and it's, it's pretty obvious. Don't demand that the story go your way. When I'm praying, yeah, ask for whatever you wish. Pray with boldness. Ask for big things. Talk to God about small things. But never demand that the story go your way. That if it doesn't happen exactly the way I want it to, I'm out. Because then who does that make to be God? You. (laughs) And that never works. In other words, surrender completely. See, if it's not my story that's being written, if I'm not the author, it's really hard for me to demand that the story goes my way. Yet that's what, that's what I often do. I get frustrated and I pray and I, well, why isn't it like this? Why don't they respond like this? Why didn't this happen? That's what I prayed for. That's the way I'm writing the story, God. Why don't you get with the program? But God's like, no, I'm writing a story and it's about me. Don't demand it go your way. When we think that life is on our own, not apart from God's story, we demand it go our way and we set ourselves up for a lot of disappointment. The example I want to show you um, of someone praying and recognizing that it's God's story is Jesus. Who, if there's anybody who had a right to demand it go his way, it would be him because he himself is God. Yet look with me at Luke chapter 22. I'm not going to have the passages on the screen this morning just because there's some lengthy ones. And so if you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 22. And I'm going to start reading in verse 39. And what's happening here is this is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. 
He's lived for three and a half years uh, with his disciples, training them in ministry, doing ministry with them. And now he's coming up to the point of his death. It's only hours away for him. And here's what's happening in verse 39 of Luke chapter 22. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you, won't, that you may not enter into temptation. And he, Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. So you have the scene. It's the night before he's crucified. It's dark. It's probably a cool evening. Uh, a stone's throw, like across the room. His disciples are over there. Jesus is over here. He kneels down to pray. And we get a, a, a sense of what he prayed here from Luke. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus knew what he was facing. He knew it was going to be brutal. He knew it was going to be hard. He knew it was going to be ugly and painful. He says, Lord, see, he asks for anything. Lord, please take this away. Please don't let this happen. But look at the next line. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But yours be done. When I pray, I got to remember, Jesus didn't demand that it go according to his way. If Jesus can't demand that, I really can't either, can I? I need to pray in such a way where I pray, Lord, I really hope this happens. This is what I'm asking for. Please let this happen. I'm begging you, but in the end, not my will, but your will be done. I'm not going to demand it my way, but I really, I really hope that it goes this way. I'm really pleading with you. I'm really asking you, like a child with his dad. And there, he, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. It's amazing when Jesus prays according not to his own personal will, but the Father's will, there's strength for him there, isn't there? Now, when you're praying, you may not have an angel show up. I haven't had that happen. I don't know, maybe you have. I haven't, you know, strengthening me, helping me, but... But I do know as I read God's word, as I pray according to his will, something happens. The Holy Spirit begins to change my heart. And I'm encouraged even when I'm not looking forward to what's coming. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. He continues to go at it. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. They were, they were so down, so discouraged, they just went to sleep because that's easier. <laughs> and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise, pray that you may not enter temptation. Friends, the first thing, if we're going to pray in the story, we've got to be like Jesus and not demand that it go our way. Pray for it to go your way. That's okay. Pray for that. But in the end, pray in such a way that you recognize it might not. That God may be writing a bigger story than, than what I have in mind. There's something bigger in store here. i got to look at it with the long view in mind, not just temporally right now. Amen? That's the first piece. The second piece, if I'm going to learn to pray in this story, I need to look for the storyteller. Look for the storyteller. You're like, what are you talking about, Josh? I mean, I mean look for Jesus. In the everyday situations of life. Look for where is God at work. Look for what is the story he's writing. What is he doing in this situation? What is he doing in me? 
in light of everything I know to be true, according to his word, that, that God's plan is, uh, we, he created everything good. We sinned and screwed up, but he sent Jesus to restore everything. And Jesus has come and paid the penalty for sin. He's offered salvation. And one day he's coming to finish what he started. And so I'm in the middle of that somewhere. And so he's working this story forward to bring great glory to Jesus. And I get to be a part. So in, that, in light of that context, whatever he's doing in my life right now to make me more like Jesus, what's he up to? How's this happening? How's he using me to forward his story? Look for his hand and then pray in light of what you're seeing. How's God at work in our church? How's he at work? Boy, we, we sure seem to see a lot of young families and kids. Boy, that seems to be a way that maybe he's at work. How do we pray about that? And get alongside that and forward that. How do, what, what is it that he's doing? I think an example of this can be found in the life of Job. You ever hear of Job? You know his story? Job is the story a lot of times we go to when we're discouraged and we go, life stinks. Because if there was ever a guy in the Bible, you could say that his, man, his life stunk at times. It's Job. You got your Bible? Turn to the book of Job with me. If you're not sure where it is, if you open up to the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms. Go one book to the left and you'll find Job. Read with me. I'm just going to read. Uh, so if you don't have your Bible, you can just listen. Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. Okay, so we're reading about a guy who's blameless and upright, surely life's going to go good for this guy, right? Um, Because that's how God works, right? It's just always peaches and cream and everything's great. Well, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys and very many servants. Now, if he's numbering the sheep in the thousands and the camels in the thousands, and it just says very many servants, I wonder how, if there are just too many to count. <laughs> so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Job prayed for his kids. (laughs) He's quite the guy, isn't he? This is what Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Sons of God here likely just means a heavenly court, probably angels, uh, come to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. I'm not going to get into the theological argument of, well, what's Satan doing in the presence of the Lord? We'll talk about that another day. But for the sake of, let's read the story. Satan's there with them. And then the Lord said to Satan, well, where did you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to him, well, then have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and he said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Like, there's no reason he fears you, though, God. Because, um, look, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've never let me at him. 
You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But if, I bet if you stretch out your hand and touch everything he has, in other words, if you bring it to ruin, he'll curse you to your face. The only reason he's worshiping you, God, the only reason he's blameless is because you've been good to him. Why don't you let a little hard, hardship happen with him and then let's see who he really is. And the Lord said to him, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not, only against him do not stretch out your hand. <clears throat> So Satan went from the presence of the Lord. Basically, here's the situation, right? He, he comes before God and he's like, uh, Job is really rich, really blameless. Yeah, but the only reason he is is because you've been so good to him, God. Anybody would, would love you if you were that good to him. So why don't you take everything away from him and then let's see who he really is. God's like, okay, go for it, but don't touch him. All of his possessions, go for it, but don't touch him. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters, Job's, it's speaking of here, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job, and he said, Job, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. All of your oxen are dead, Job. That's a bad day. While he was still speaking, though, there came another. And he said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. Now he lost all his sheep and all those servants. And while he was still speaking, there came another. And he said that the Chaldeans formed three groups and they made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down your servants with the edge of the sword. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. This is getting bad, isn't it? He lost all his oxen, lost all his sheep, all the servants around him, all the camels. But while he was still speaking, there came a fourth. Another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people. And they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now Job has lost his children. He's lost all of his wealth. He's lost his family that he prayed for often. What would you do if you were Job? Imagine, imagine this week, in a matter of 15 minutes, uh, you lose everything and everyone in your family. How would you feel? How would you respond? After praying for your family for years, like Job did, and then God just lets them die? What? God, I prayed for this. Why, why did you let this happen? Don't you care? I don't know about you, I'd, I think I'd find myself bitter, a little bit angry, a little despondent. Look how Job responds. He arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head. In other words, those are signs of mourning. And he fell on the ground and he worshipped. He recognized there was a greater story. He was looking for the storyteller. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and he's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job was keeping his eyes on the storyteller. He recognized God was writing a story. He didn't get it all yet, but he knew there was more to it than just him and this circumstance and this situation. See, if I don't pray with that in mind, knowing that God is the one writing the story, then when my prayers get answered or things go a different direction, my heart can just be torn apart. Be like Job. Keep your eyes on the storyteller. 
In all of this, it says, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. You go into chapter 2, again, there was a day when the sons of God, and, and this time Satan says, well, what about his health? If you took his health away, God, then surely he would curse you. So the Lord said to Satan, he said, behold, he's in your hand. Spare only his life. Chapter 2, verse 7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he struck Job with loathsome sores and the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece, Job did, of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. So now Job's health has gone to pot. <laughs> Lord, I honored you my whole life. Why, why do I have cancer? Why do I have this? Why is this happening to me? Again, if you don't know there's a greater story at work, it's hard to know how to deal with that, isn't it? And then his, oh, here, here, this is helpful too. Look at his wife. I'll bet she didn't win the Proverbs 31 Woman of the Year Award from her church this year. <laughs> Look what she says. She goes, she goes to him, um, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Boy, that's th- Thanks. Honey, that's helpful. <laughs> Hopefully your, your spouse maybe isn't like that, but we all have people in our vo- and voices in our lives that when things don't go quite right and our eyes get drawn from the storyteller um, that tempt us to check out and just be done. And, and things get bleak and hopeless in a hurry because we quit looking for Jesus in it. And what is he up to? And that's not an easy question to ask in the midst of suffering. I know that. But it's an essential one, right? It's one we really have to ask. Where's your hope? Keep your eyes on Jesus. By the way, this goes for whether or not your candidate won the election this week. You know, I know know, uh, there's some in our church who are happy about the election. Others, maybe not so much. I heard uh, stories this week from, um, I was uh, with a group of pastors in Chicago on Thursday. And one guy, his name is Ricardo, and he pastors, uh, he oversees a handful of Hispanic churches for the free church around the city of Chicago. And he talked about the great fear of people in his church. And this feeling of, well, what's, he said in, in their churches, uh, approximately uh, 50% of, of the people in their churches are undocumented. And there's great fear. What's going to happen now? Are they going to be ripped away? Why is everybody else, other people in the church, rejoicing in this? When, uh, don't, they, don't they see the sorrow in my heart and in our family and in our church? Where are they? Don't they care? The reason I bring this up is just to say, if your candidate won, I sent an email out this week, congrats, right? If he didn't, don't worry, it's going to be okay. But in either case, keep your eyes on Jesus and be very careful what you say, especially on social media. Don't be gloating. Uh, At the same time, you don't need to be in despair. Because uh, whether you like it or not... um, God is the one who puts people in authority and takes down kings. And uh, we need to pray that, that Donald Trump, that the Lord would use him for his purposes and his kingdom to forward it here on this earth. Because guess what? Only God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. Right? And no matter who is going to be elected, it wasn't going to be perfect. 
And I, if your eyes are there, you're in, you're in trouble. Pay attention to the greater story God is telling. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And I just say that as a way of warning, because in our community, people you work alongside, that you live alongside, you don't know necessarily how they're responding to things right now. And in a world where less and less people know Jesus, guess who they often look to as their shepherd? Leaders in the government. And there is great fear out there. Be careful what you say. Be a person who brings hope and the love of Jesus. Amen? Be like Job. Keep your eyes on the storyteller. Here's Job's response to his wife after she said, curse God and die. He said, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. He was correct. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? He kept his eyes on God. He knew God was writing a bigger story. His story continues, and he's confronted not only by his wife, but now his friends who think they have a pulse on what God's doing. They accuse him wrongly of sinning against God, but we know they're wrong because in these first two chapters, we read over and over that Job didn't sin, that he was blameless. And, and we watch Job ebb back and forth by being confronted by his friends and wondering, did I sin? Do I really trust God? And you see it going back and forth on what he should do. And then finally in chapter 23, we, he, we see him looking into God as the storyteller. And Job said, he said, today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Job's honest before God. Oh, I knew that I knew if all oh, that I knew where I might find him. Job's praying and not getting an answer, that I might come to his seat. I'd lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. He would contend with me, or would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. Job says he's powerful, but I know he's personal, and I know he's writing a story. And he goes on, uh, and he says finally in verse 10, um, after saying, I can't find him, he goes, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Job's trusting God. He knows that God is writing a greater story. So you and I, we need to look for the storyteller in the midst of suffering. We need to look in the the wake of an election. What is God up to? Is Jesus coming back soon? I hope so. What's he up to? What about the midst of your suffering just in your family or in any other situation in life this week? What's he up to? Keep your eyes on the storyteller. When you're dealing with people that are hard to deal with, what's he up to in their life? How could he use me to move it forward? That's what Paul does. Paul's another example. Whenever he writes, we talked about this already, but whenever he writes a letter, what's the first thing he does? He always says, I thank the Lord my God for you personally. He cares about him personally. He's looking to see what is God up to in you? Where is Jesus at work in you? He even does this with the Corinthians. And they were messed up as a church. But nonetheless, he thanks God for them and commends some things in them. Well, we could keep going talking about this, but I would encourage you. To remember Romans 8, 28 and 29, we know that for those who love God, all things work together in the story for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And if it doesn't seem good yet, well, get, get outside of yourself and look at the greater story. What's he doing? It may not be the end yet. It probably isn't if it isn't good. 
And look at what he, here's, here's what his story is up to. Verse 29 of Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Everything that God's working for good, he's working to make you more like Jesus, to make me more like Jesus. Whatever that suffering is, whatever those events are, let's keep our eyes on him. And then finally, here's the third piece. First is uh, to not demand the story go our way, uh, to look for the storyteller, and then finally stay in the story. Don't give up. Stay in the story. Because here's what's going to happen. As you trust God, you just read Job. We could go back to him for this example. When you trust God, things are not going to always go the best way. At some point, things are going to turn the wrong way. And when they turn away, I'm not expecting. If I don't stick with it, if I don't stay in the story, again, my heart becomes despondent and hopeless and angry and bitter and cynical. Stay in the story. If you want a great example of this, stay in the story. Know that God's up to something greater. Look at Joseph in the Old Testament. Look at Joseph. Genesis chapter 37. Try to move fast. Here's how it works. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan where his father had lived as a foreigner. And this is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17. So anybody here 17? High school students, any of you guys 17? Liz, you're 17. Megan? So, So Joseph is your age. He's 17 years old. And uh, he's working with his brothers. And uh, often he tended his father's flocks. He worked with his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers are doing. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe of many colors. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest. And they couldn't say a kind word to him. Well, then one night Joseph has a dream, right? And he tells his brothers about his dream. He's like, we were, we were in the fields, we were tying up grain. And then what happens is all your, all your piles of grain came to mine and they bowed down to mine. And they're like, who do you think you are, Joseph? You're saying we're going to bow down to you? He's like, oh, I'm just telling you my dream. That's what I dreamt. The next night, he, or shortly after that anyway, he has another dream. And again, he told his brothers. I don't know if I would have told my brothers a second time. He said, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father too. And his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Soon after, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. And when they had been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, uh, your brothers are out caring for, the herd, for, caring for the flocks. Why don't you take some supplies to them? And so he travels looking for them, and he finds out they've moved on to the area of Dothan. So he follows his brothers there. And when his brothers saw his coming, they rec- saw him coming, they recognized him because of his colorful coat. And they saw him, and as he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Literally the keeper of the dreams, the one who thinks he's in control. Come on, let's kill him and we'll throw him into one of these cisterns or one of these wells. And then we can tell our father an animal's eaten him. Boy, there's some bitterness, right? When, when your brothers are willing to kill you and, and tell a lie to your father about it. But when Reuben, one of the brothers, heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. He said, let's not kill him. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him in this dry cistern. And so long story short, that's what they do. They take his robe, they throw him in the cistern, and then it says they sat down to eat. <laughs> that's how callous they were to this. 
And while they're eating, they're like a couple of them anyway. I think Judah among them uh, says, uh, well, we don't need to kill him because what he saw on the horizon was a group of traders coming in. And he said, let's just sell him to them. And so some of them agree. They pull him out of the well and they sell him to the traders and they keep his coat. And Reuben, was, his, his plan, we find out, was actually to go back. He wanted to rescue Joseph and bring him back. Um, maybe to make up for some of his sins before his father previously. But uh, he goes back to the well. He looks, Joseph's gone. So he didn't know evidently that they had sold him. And he's like, what do we do now? So they take the robe and they, they rip it up and they tear it up and they put blood on it and they take it back to their, hey, isn't this uh, Joseph's coat? This is his, isn't it? It looks like it. I wonder what happened to him. And of course, uh, Jacob is distraught. And he assumes that Joseph was killed by a wild beast. And when in reality, he had been sold to these traders who take him down to Egypt. And he gets to Egypt. And you know what they do? They sell him uh, to Potiphar. And Potiphar, it says in the scripture, was in command of all of Pharaoh's army and all of his household. And so think if you're Joseph, you're going out just to obey and to serve your brothers. You're going to take them food and things go wrong in a hurry. You get thrown in a well to die. And then you get sold into slavery. That's a bummer, right? But he gets, he gets sold to Potiphar. And with Potiphar, we learn that whatever Joseph did, it turned out really good. And Potiphar begins to recognize this. And so he puts Joseph in charge of everything in his household. Hey, all right. He's obeying the Lord. Things are going great. And until Potiphar's wife sees Joseph, and it says that Joseph was a pretty good-looking dude. And uh, she began to lust after him and uh, make moves on him and entice him to sleep with her. And Joseph again here acts rightly, honoring the Lord, and literally flees from sexual temptation. Literally runs out the door. And she grabs his coat. There's another, he's, he's lost a second coat now. <laughs> grabs his coat and uh, screams. And then people come in, what happened? And she thinks to herself, realizing she has his coat, uh, that, he tried to rape me. And she cries, rape. And then Potiphar comes, and what, what happened? And she tells him, he was trying to fool around with me, so, and then he took off running. Potiphar was incredibly angry. And because Joseph was uh, one of his slaves, he really didn't have any rights, he takes Joseph right away, throws him in prison. Joseph ends up in prison in, in, the, in Pharaoh's uh, of Pharaoh's enemies, and he's there, and suddenly he's back down at the bottom again. Things have turned and gone wrong. What will Joseph do? Well, he's there for a time, and it says that one day Pharaoh uh, got really angry for whatever reason at his baker and his cupbearer, and he throws them in prison. And Joseph, by the way, when Joseph's in prison, again, the prison warden sees what Joseph's doing and, and is really impressed with the Lord being with him and puts him in charge of all kinds of things in the prison. And so these two, the cupbearer and the baker, are under Joseph's command when they get thrown into prison. And uh, long story short, they both have dreams, and Joseph interprets them. Uh, the the cupbearer said, I dreamt that there were like these, uh, these three things of grapes, and I squeezed them out into a cup, and I drank it. And Joseph's like, you know what? That, that represents, he, he, he gives God the glory for it. He says, God told me, here's, here's what's going to happen. In three days, you're going to be restored to your place, and uh, you're going to serve Pharaoh, and things are going to go really well for you. And he goes, so when this happens, be sure to tell Pharaoh about me so that maybe I can get out of here. And then the baker, it says, having heard the good word to the cupbearer, thinks, well, maybe I'm going to ask him what my dream meant. 
And he had this dream about uh, baskets of pastries on his head, three of them. And Joseph tells him, well, yeah, yours, it means three days too. In three days, you're going to be impaled on a pole. <laughs> Thanks, Joseph. Great. So for one really good, one really bad. And what happens? Three days later, they get out. Pharaoh does what? He restores the cupbearer to his place of honor, and he impales the baker with a pole. But it says in the text that the cupbearer forgot all about Joseph. Two years later, two years go by. Joseph has been obeying the Lord, honoring the Lord. What's happening? The story isn't going right, Lord. It's turned the wrong way again. I'm still here in prison. Now what? The cupbearer finally remembers him. Pharaoh has a dream. Joseph comes and and, uh, interprets the dream to him, telling him that there's going to be seven years of a great harvest and seven years of famine. And what you need to do is these first seven years, Pharaoh, uh, this is God's telling you what's going to happen. You need to save up at least a fifth of all your grain for these first seven years in this bumper crop so that you have food for these other seven years. And people from all over the world are going to come to you for food. And Pharaoh received his words why, you know, well and goes, well, who else could we put in a place like that other than Joseph? He, God's telling him exactly what's going to happen. Surely things have gone well for him in the prison and they went well for him with Potiphar. He's got to be the one we put in charge. And Joseph gets put in charge. He, it was, he was second only to Pharaoh. It says wherever Joseph went, people bowed down before him. He was given a signet ring so that his word was equal with that of Pharaoh. He could do and rule whatever he wanted all throughout Egypt. And he follows through and he stores up grain those seven years. And then you get into the famine. And what happens? Long story short is uh, his brothers end up coming to Egypt for food. And, and Joseph uh, gives, it's a whole long story. We don't have time to tell you right now. But he ends up giving them food. And he weeps before them. And God uses Joseph and all of his suffering as part of a greater story. Imagine if Joseph hadn't stuck in the story at any point. If after he was sold into slavery, if he said, I give up. I'm not honoring God anymore. Look what it's gotten me so far. And then uh, after, but maybe he makes it that far. But then after Potiphar's wife accuses him and he gets thrown in prison, again, he goes, this following God stuff is for the birds, man, because every time I do, it goes wrong. Every time I do, something happens and it turns the wrong way. I'm done. What if he had done that? Or what if when the cupbearer didn't come back for two years to recognize Joseph and how God had used him. What if he had given up? What if he didn't stay in the story? Everyone might have starved during the famine. Nobody would have been there to provide for his family and for the Israelites. What about you? What are you going through this week? What are you praying about? And you don't understand why it's happening. You don't understand why it's taken a wrong turn. What happens if you don't stay in the story? What happens to your kids? What happens to generations after you? If you don't stay in the story and recognize God's up to something bigger, stick with it. Trust him. See, when we pray in light of those things, our prayers change, don't they? And we pray in light of what God is doing on a greater arc than just our lives. And I want to end with this. This chart is in your your message notes this morning. Then we'll sing and call it a morning. There's two approaches here to praying. 
And I know we've been through a lot this morning, so thanks for sticking with me. But first, there's no story, or I can pray in light of the story. If, if I pray not recognizing God has a greater story at work, then here's what happens. I get bitter. But if I know there's a story, I'm waiting. No story, I get angry. If I recognize he's up to something greater, then I'm watching. I become aimless if there's no story, but wondering, what is he up to when I recognize the story? Cynical or praying. Controlling versus submitting. Hopeless versus hoping. Thankless versus thankful. I think there's one more. Blaming or repenting. Loved ones, you're part of something greater that God is doing. I'm part of something greater. Our church is part of something greater. So as we pray, let's pray in light of that. Not demanding it go our way. Keeping our eyes on Jesus and sticking with it until he comes again. Amen? Man, let me pray. We'll sing and we'll call it a day. Father, thanks for Jesus and thanks for your grace to us through him. Uh, Lord, thanks for the example of Jesus praying, not, not his will, but your will be done. If anybody had a right to demand it, go their way, it was him. Yet, Father, he trusts you. Help us to trust you. Uh, I think of, of Job and keeping his eyes, Lord, on you throughout all of his suffering. Help us to keep our eyes on you, wondering what you're up to. And then obviously of Joseph, Lord, he stuck with it, even in the midst of a lot of trial and a lot of hardship. Help me to stick with it on the days that I want to quit and give up, knowing that you're up to something greater than this week or this month or even this life. Help us trust you, Lord, and pray in light of those things. It'll reshape the way that we approach you. And it'll guard our hearts from despair and from hurt and bitterness. Lord, we love you. Thanks for Jesus. We pray all of this through him. Amen.